0: So we're going to start the membership class. The in the last four membership classes. So in the first one, we focused on um, the first the first vow in the covenant. Um, we talked through I think a, a few other ones, but we also talked about the need to read ahead. We talked about the shorter catechism and as kind of being the Standard for coming to communicate membership how officers are supposed to uh, hold to the Westminster Confession, larger catechism, shorter catechism, and the Directory of Public Worship. So, those are the standards we've adopted, um, and those are what we use for our practice. Um, and then we have uh, the difference between coming to communicate membership versus coming to office. So those are how the standards relate. Scriptures are the highest standards, so if we were able to ever prove that something in our confession were wrong, then what we would need to do is to publicly repent and to amend our confession. Um, and so I believe that the things in the confession are accurate, um, and that there are not any points that need to be corrected. But we, in our history, originally had the American confession, for example, and went through a process of reform where we repented of that and adopted the original. Uh, so that's something that was a part of our History as a as a body, Um, I don't remember how long ago that occurred, but a year or two, something like that. It
1: was actually less than
0: a year. Okay, but we went through a process that lasted for a long time for the discussion of it. So we started that process maybe three years ago or something. Okay, so um, okay, so the thing that I want to make sure we get through today, I have a few points that I uh, want to mention that are not they're kind of just oddities, uh, they're not our main points uh, the, the main things that I wanted to focus on were you know, the fact that we have the doctrine of scripture that scripture is the infallible word of God it is the authority, uh, it is rationally coherent, um, that the light of nature is reason that God has given that it's the light that lights the minds of all men there is innate content that includes moral categories and the attributes of God that are unavoidable in human thought and Those, plus reason, are the basis of human inexcusability. And so every man, whether he is on an island without the scriptures or or not, has responsibility, is inexcusable, because the fact that a false god is created, and we make something eternal that's not eternal, we make something God, the highest good that's not God, and we claim to know things that we don't actually know, and those things are all assertions of, of false divinity as we start to, Have false doctrine. And so um, that's the corruption of the nature that's inherent in men. So we talked about the guilt of Adam, the corruption of the nature, and we've talked about uh, the fact that every human contradicts his own conscience. He does things that he thinks are wrong, says things he thinks are wrong, uh, thinks things that contradict himself from previous times. And so we talked about inexcusability and the doctrine of, of knowledge coming from divine revelation and the infallibility of the scriptures. So those are key. The other thing is we've talked about, um, obviously, the Trinity and the Incarnation. We've talked about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and those things are key to the Christian faith. Um, We've discussed the doctrines of Calvinism more in the public preaching recently, and so those are obviously in the Shorter Catechism. Um, The proper definition of grace and so I would have emphasized that, but I would have emphasized it perhaps more had we not been going through it as much recently in the public teaching. Um, and talked about the Ten Commandments and tried to run through those quickly to make sure that there's some understanding of the fact that the Ten Commandments are given by God as categories to help us to think about all moral things and to make it so that we can deal with things having the standard of God's law for church discipline and for our own practice um, and then we talked about the, the end of uh, the church covenant in terms of the conflict resolution process. Um, there was also discussion about Sabbath, and there was discussion about um, the uh, idea of morning and evening worship, uh, private worship, household worship. Those are things that we spent time discussing. So when you think about membership, church membership, the last thing that we have not spent a lot of time on is the end of the shorter catechism. Uh, which talks about the outward and ordinary means of grace, but we spent time on that discussing it in the context of private and household worship. And so, um, has everyone here had a chance to read questions 82 to 107? Okay. So, when we w- having looked at the whole shorter catechism, the shorter catechism starts with the glory of God. Right? The, the purpose of man is to glorify God, which means to know God and to act in accordance to the knowledge of God, so to obey His law. And that shows his knowledge, and it it also encourages us in integrity to increasingly know him. As we apply what he commands, it makes it easier to know him better. Um, So we are created to glorify God. We are told in the third commandment that we are to glorify God by not using the way he's revealed himself vainly, but to instead glorify him by all the things that he has revealed himself with. And then we pray that God would be glorified um, in the Lord's Prayer. That's the first petition. Hallowed be your name. And so in that, those things point to the idea of the glory going throughout. So the purpose of man, the law is directed towards the glory of God, and we pray for the glory of God. And so that glorifying of God, that has to do with the dominion mandate and the great commission we are to order and fill um, and that we glorify God by filling the earth with knowers of God and ordering um, the things that God has given to us so in Zechariah it talks about how even the little bells on the horse's reins will say holy unto the Lord which is a reference to the gold piece that was on the turban of the high priest so you have even these little tiny trinkets of culture are going to have that Um, and so this idea of the holiness that goes out from the central holy place and the knowledge of God is filling the earth Um, and so that's how that would manifest itself in terms of managing material things you have the word of God written on the door which is about ruling things according to the word of God and that's going to manifest itself in you know writing the word of God on things but that's not literally the only thing that's that's a symbolic thing it's a it's a representative of the whole that the word of God is being applied to everything so then we think about the Great Commission and the Great Commission is given to recognize the fact that as opposed to the period of time where the people of God were being preserved and it was kind of a narrowing that was occurring so that Christ would come in that context then in the rejection of Christ by the people of God going out of the kingdom to the nations to bring the nations in with the eventual result that the nation of the Israelites will repent and come back there's this there's this pulling off and grafting back in that occurs in history that's the process the Great Commission is is about it's about taking the word to disciple the nations and then to cause them to covenant and they have all of the teaching of Christ and they're to be taught to apply all of the teaching of Christ, and so every nation should be, in a sense, like Israel, where there's a national people that are covenanted with God, and we don't have to have the distinctive th- distinctives of Israel, but the covenant institutions of the individual, the household, the church, and the state are all to be brought into subjection to Christ throughout the world, and so that acknowledgement of Christ is what the Great Commission is bringing about. So the earth is being filled with the knowledge of God and it will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea and in that process as the, the word is going out we see that occurring by degrees through spiritual warfare it's an agonizing spiritual warfare and that agonizing spiritual warfare is this progressive work and so the knowledge of God in us is to be shared and as we share the knowledge of God with other people it increases our own possession of the knowledge of God. And the result is that it helps us to build so that there's a maturing of the church. And so the church cooperating together works together to mature itself and to make it so that it is able to work more effectively to spread that knowledge. And so the spreading of that knowledge and the maturing fit together. And so the confessional standards that we have are the maturing point of the church that we believe the church has reached in history so the point of that is to say here's the one faith and the one practice that has been attained to by the church and we need to go on from there and see the church continue to mature and so the goal is to find what are the problems that have come up in the last 400 years since the completion of the Westminster Standards and to figure out how do we engage more effectively there how do we deal with the challenges inside of the church and outside of the church that are coming to bear against the church and confront those things and so the work would be to see a unifying of reformed churches that hold to that standard and who are desirous to move on to be able to add to not that there's new revelation but that there is more in the scriptures than has been captured in the Westminster standards and That the goal of the church is to keep maturing and progressing on and to have the confessional standard deal with the challenges that occur in history and we're told that god brings heresies against the church so that there's a requirement of us to oppose it that those who are approved might be made clear maybe made known and so the confessional standard is about that and seeking the glory of god is about ruling what we have well starting with our own souls and seeking to apply the word of God to it, and working outward. So we talk about a doxological focus, or a focus on the glory of God. That is what is meant, is the desire to see God known, and to see him shown by speaking the words, and bringing down every presumptuous argument that opposes itself against Christ, and to see our rule over material things and institutions To be ruled by the Word of God, and that displays the glory of God in the world. So that's the doxological focus. We have a mission to do that, and you spend your life on that, you focus on that, and that gives you strength as you focus on that mission to keep moving on. Um, That results in argument. So we really encourage discussion and argumentation here, civil debate. Um, So that's why the 10th vow, for example, requires that you go through conflict resolution before you before you leave. If you find that there's something that's an error here, you have a duty to go through a public process of objection before you would leave and to seek to hear out the other side. And the goal is to see what does the scripture actually say. So when there's a conflict, it's not although in general the one who's teaching has the duty to prove, when there's an objection, the objector also has the duty to prove the position they're offering as the alternative. So it's a mutual duty of proving. So it's not just sitting around and shooting down what's said. It's here's this, here's why, and we all agree that the scriptures are sufficient. If they're sufficient, there's an answer if this is a moral choice. And If that's the case, construct for me the alternative. Now, you might not have the right position, and I might not have the right position, but while we're fighting about what is true, the way we're going to advance is by arguing together what we actually believe the scriptures say. And if we're both wrong, let's be humble enough to admit it, and then we can try to find how do we actually get the true position of scripture here um so that the lord's supper you are reaffirming every time you take the lord's supper that you are either at peace or that you are going through the lawful process of conflict resolution hoping to come to peace so it's a non-hypocritical process of conflict resolution so you can keep taking the lord's supper as long as you are non-hypocritically going through resolution um That can be even just planning it, making it known, and scheduling it. That doesn't mean you have to rush it to be like right away. There's so many things to deal with in life that you can't just push things off. And so oftentimes the most important thing is getting a time on the calendar. Right? And so you go, okay, well, we're going to meet in two weeks to talk about this thing and seek to resolve it. Great. You know you have a plan to seek reconciliation, to work through the thing with whoever you've got the conflict with. It's there. You continue to re-covenant knowing that what you're doing is you're committing to work through it and to apply the word of God. So, um, the Lord's Supper, it's important that you come to the Lord's Supper knowing this. We believe that the Lord's Supper, if you take it wrongly, brings a curse upon you, that the discipline of God comes, and it even involves uh, physical hurt. The sickness is one of the ways that the Lord disciplines the wrong use of the Lord's Supper. Um, so, the Lord's Supper, you need to understand the doctrine that it represents, understand the way in which the body of Christ and the blood of Christ are shown forth in it Um, and you need to understand, you need to be able to differentiate between a true church and a false church Um, and you need to examine yourself in order to see if you are taking it hypocritically so I'm going to walk through that the idea of the Lord's Supper um, it is a covenant meal right? baptism is the sign of the covenant for entering into the church you don't receive baptism and become a part of the church. You receive baptism because you are already holy. Okay, so either by profession of faith or by being born into a Christian house, um, there is a a category of persons that are covenantally, visibly, distinct from the world, and the church is supposed to give a marker that visibly distinguishes baptism to say this person is holy. Now that holiness does not mean the person is saved, Uh, you can not believe and be baptized. That brings greater condemnation if you die without faith. It puts you under the covenant sanctions, or you have blessings and curses. And every time you take the Lord's Supper, you are reaffirming the same covenant, and magnifying blessings and curses. So, with the Lord's Supper, it's a covenant meal, and it represents all of the benefits of the covenant of grace. It represents the covenant itself. It represents the mediator of the covenant. So a covenant is an oath, a swearing, and it's life or death. It's got blessings and curses. um, It's defined by God. And so when we enter in and we're in the visible covenant of grace, what we're saying is that Christ represents me as my covenant covenant representative. And that relates back to Adam, which we talked about Adam in the fall in the first lesson, I think, or the second one. Um, and the idea that Adam is a covenant representative for all mankind. He fell, and we're all guilty in him. Christ is the second Adam, and he pays for the sins of his people, and there are visible signs for his people. That's the external covenant. If you have faith, you have the covenant in you. You you internally have adopted the covenant. And so this idea that you believe the covenant, the covenant content is in your mind, and you think it is true, you think it applies to you, you think Christ has died for your sins, Right? that is a saving faith, as opposed to not believing those things. So you have to understand the gospel, understand the way in which the Lord's Supper is a symbol for Christ, the work he did, and the benefits he obtained. Now all of the Old Testament sacrifices and everything that are involved with the temple system other than um, other than circumcision, which is a replacement for which is the earlier version of baptism, right? baptism replaces it, they're all kind of bound up and replaced in the Lord's Supper. So they all point forward and the Lord's Supper takes all of their meaning. So getting a deep understanding of the Lord's Supper involves Studying the worship of the Old Testament and trying to understand what are the different types of sacrifices and all of that. That's a deep study that you should engage in for your whole life. Um, But all of those things point forward to Christ and the fact that he pays for your sin and provides you with a righteousness that is not your own. We talked about imputation uh, a couple of weeks ago, and so I'm not going to re-explain that in detail right now, but the idea that there's the forgiveness in christ and the righteousness in christ that we have with him legally as our representative and so we that the fact that we have the forgiveness of sins by christ's death is the central meaning of the lord's supper and so when we take the lord's supper we have to realize that the bread and the wine are symbols and they mean all the content of the covenant of grace the central thing of which is the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So, we, when we take the Lord's Supper, we have to understand that those visible symbols are not the, the actual body of Christ in the corporal sense. It is the body of Christ actually in a spiritual sense. So what does that mean? We talk about the real presence of Christ, the Calvinist view of reality is that truth and reality are unified. So, historically, what Rome taught was that truth and reality relate to each other, but are not equivalent. And so you'd say, well, you need to believe truth, but the only way you're going to take in the body and blood of Christ is by taking it in, in a carnal, fleshly, corporal, bodily manner. So the Calvinist view, the Reformed view, the biblical view, is that when we have faith, we are possessing Christ in our minds. That when you take the Lord's Supper with faith, you are remembering Christ's body broken for you, And therefore you're taking in his body really, actually, but it's by faith. And so you're being nourished in the soul as you think upon the truths and there is a real possession of Christ by the mind in faith. And so with the blood, the drinking of wine, we have the same thing. It's a symbol and we have the real possession of the, the real spiritual consuming of Christ in faith. And so that's the real presence of Christ, and that real is referring to a view of metaphysics, the nature of reality connected to how you know. And that real presence is the idea that Christ really is present by faith, that we have his human nature in our minds. And so we've talked about the... Lutheran and Roman Catholic views in in a different time and so just to give them again as a contrast the Lutheran view is going to say Christ in his humanity is everywhere present because the divine attributes go to the human nature and so they're going to say that his body is everywhere present and his blood is everywhere present but that somehow doesn't make it so that we're swimming in flesh right so that's, that's the view the Roman Catholic view is going to be the same thing but the idea that you are having a transformation that occurs of the bread and wine into body and blood that transformation is supposed to occur at a particular point in the process by an action of a priest in the administration of the mass and the idea that the body and blood can be present in so many places is supposed to occur by the same argument that the divine attributes are given to the human nature of Christ. And we talked about how that's contradictory and how you cannot say that the same nature is both omnipresent and not omnipresent at the same time in the same sense. And so that a contradictory. It is false. And so since we have the standard that logic is a part of the word of God, that logic is a part of the nature of God, that God is logic, He, logic is the way he thinks, he is the logos, that He does not contradict himself. The word of God cannot be broken, and so we're not going to assert two mutually exclusive and contradictory things and pretend as though those are reconcilable. So that proves those systems, the Lutheran system and the Roman Catholic system, to be false. There are other contradictions in them, but those are two prominent ones. So our view of the Lord's Supper, the real presence, Christ is present by faith. We consume him by faith. And when you are taking the Lord's Supper, if you're going to take it without bringing curse upon yourself, you need to ask yourself, do I believe this gospel? And do I desire to grow in sanctification and to apply the law more and more to keep what I've sworn to do? And if the answer is yes to those things, even if you are weak and doubting and failing, you should come and recommit and know that God will give you strength increasingly to apply his word so that's how we deal with the Lord's Supper Uh, I want to pause there, any questions about doxological focus, the mutual duty to prove or the Lord's Supper yeah so the Lord's Supper is a replacement for the Passover and in the Passover you have um you have the the, the giving of, of bread with with um, unleavened bread with bitter herbs as a part of it and there's also a lamb and the lamb is not present because the sacrifice has already been done and the bread continues um, as a part of it and it's the symbol for for his body we also have this kind of this historical uh, usage in the Bible you see um, early on where Melchizedek meets Abraham in Genesis and um, they have a covenant meal after a battle um, there's bread and wine there um, and God uses bread as kind of the symbol for nourishment and food in general and it's so the idea of give us this day our daily bread uh, this idea that we're, we, we have that, that bread and Christ is talked about as being the bread of life and we're told that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and that's from Deuteronomy, but it's also explained by Christ in his ministry. And the idea that if we um, we seek nourishment for the body, we ought to seek certain nourishment for the soul even more than that. And so our, our spiritual bread is represented by that material bread to help us to make that connection more broadly in life as well. So I think there are more reasons than that, but those are ones that I know are scriptural that... Uh, give weight to the reasons why God did that. Um, okay, so one of the things that um, these are peculiarities that are not broadly taught that I think are applications of the word that are useful to know about the culture of Puritan. Um, one is you've obviously noticed the women have head coverings the reason for women having head coverings because we believe that uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, it teaches that there is a natural covering of long hair for women and that there is a fabric covering in addition to that. happy to talk through that in detail if anybody has any questions about it, but in short when you look at the language uh, there's two words that are translated covering and that makes it more confusing, so people read it and they think oh, long hair is the covering and that's made easier by the fact that the Greek is being translated into English, and we have two different words referring to covering. But also, um, if you literally <coughs> replace the word covering with hair in every place that covering is there, you will find that it ends up saying if you have short hair, then you should have ho- short hair. That's that's one of the central things that occurs. It, whereas on the other side of it, if you read through that text, it will say if you um, don't wear a covering then you might as well have short hair, right? which is an argument from uh, the I don't know if it's the lesser to the greater or the greater to the lesser, but it's arguing that one implies the other uh, that if you're doing this then you might as well do that. And so that argument only makes sense if we're talking about a material covering and hair both. Um, So if you have questions about that, happy to talk about it more. I have a book that I recommend to you, but that's why we have the practice and we believe it's a way of honoring both Christ and the husband. And we, for the men, if you wear a hat into the service, we will ask you to take it off. So, um, and that's trying to apply that text to both. With the women, because it's an offense against the husband, we allow the husband to determine if he wants to deal with anything to escalate it. As opposed to dealing with it publicly, the husband is able to take the offense because it's a dishonor to the husband and or the father. And so if the father wants to bring charges the goal of not being busy bodies into each other's lives is to say, let the father or husband deal with this, and uh, that's how we've practiced it historically. And um, so that's how we deal with head coverings. We have uh, head of house voting, and the men speak, the women do not speak, in the public assembly. That includes in asking of questions. Paul in 1 Corinthians clearly forbids women from even asking questions and says that they should ask their husbands at home, which is not a popular thing, but it's a clear thing. And the word of God is true, and men are liars, so we try to apply that. And then, um, with related to the head coverings and modesty element, I yes, yeah, yeah.
2: So, in the public assembly, you mean in the worship service, really?
0: The worship service and in a court. So, assemblies for government and assemblies for worship, which are the uh, so. That if there's a call to worship or a call for the court to assemble, those would be the times that we're talking about.
1: An exception would be if, uh, if a woman was called to bear witness.
0: Sure. So there are exceptions. The court can call a woman to appear and call the woman to speak, and also women in the public assembly are to you know speak during the times that the whole body is to speak, so they sing together. And it would be appropriate in law to disobey ordinary order in certain circumstances. If there's some, you know, if there's some horrible thing that's occurring in the public assembly and no man has the guts to deal with it and the woman has to speak or the woman has to deal with her own child in the, in some, something, that there are times where it is appropriate to go outside of the ordinary order um, and so there are exceptions uh, that are not in the ordinary course um, but uh, broadly speaking women do not speak in the public assembly yes so what you just
2: said was if there is a problem and no man is willing to object to it, a uh,
0: woman is able to object to it? In some circumstances, yes. And we can talk about that in more detail, but, you know, if, if I taught heresy from the pulpit and during the comments, questions, and objections period, no man, you know, dealt with that, um, you know, maybe the appropriate thing would be for the wife to bring that up to her husband and ask for it to be dealt with in the next service, But if it's still not being dealt with over time then there's a certain point at which you go, nobody is dealing with this and this has to be dealt with. And that would be even true of a child. And so that's a hard thing uh, but that's the thing. The law of God demands perfection and we are forgiven even if we have failings by Christ because of his death for us. Okay. So we can talk about that more at home. Okay, so uh, modesty uh, obviously relates to head coverings, but also we believe the biblical doctrine um, that uh, modesty means covering nakedness, and nakedness is defined in the Bible as the breast to the thigh. And so that means that the thigh ends at basically the knee, so covering to the knee, covering to the top of the breast, that is the appropriate attire for biblical modesty. And it's possible, of course, to cover those things and to basically wear something that looks like you painted it on, right? And that would not be modest. It is also possible to, like, wear that in all jewels, and unless you're the Queen of Sheba, that's probably not modest for your station. So those are the things that you should take into account. But the most countercultural element of that is uh, covering clavicle to knee is the standard that we apply. So any questions about any of the things I just went through? Great, yes. Yeah, to men. Yep. Yeah. I, I think if you're in front of other people and you're exposing your nakedness, you should repent. Yep. Yeah. So, what does the Bible say? How does it define nakedness? Yeah.
3: Okay.
2: This would apply in Life. I mean, not,
0: not just in, in the worship service. Right, but if it's in the worship service, it's something that is going to be disorderly conduct that uh, should be addressed in some sort of orderly way. And if somebody were continuously intentionally coming and in, flaunting a modesty rule, that it could result in, it's the sort of thing that could result in them being asked, even after they're actually ex- so you know, communicated, you can come to the public worship. If you're coming exposing nakedness into the public worship, that's the sort of disorderly behavior that could result in asking that you not attend until you repent of that or until you stop that. You can't saying you're, you're being kicked out, you can't hear the preaching of the word because you're staying here naked. So, so yes, I think that that's... So, just to give you a couple of quick... So, I think almost everybody agrees with the covering of the breast, Also, although for men, people often object to that. But we find in terms of the coverings that are used to cover nakedness, the word that's frequently used is is sort of translated as apron. It's the idea of covering the chest down. Um, You also find um, that all of the clothing that is given always covers that even for men, like with the priestly garb. Um, And then with the thigh, um, so with the breast, you also obviously find, like Song of Solomon and, and some of the prophets, you'll have references to the breast in terms of nakedness and the exposing of the breast. But you also find um, in Exodus 28, 42, the giving of the clothing of the priests, they are told, okay, here's all this stuff you wear. Also, wear trousers that cover your thighs because when you go up the stairs, you might expose your nakedness if you don't wear those trousers. And so that idea that they're not to expose their nakedness when they're going up the stairs, right, right? That kind of care. That's the level of care that God cares about about the covering of nakedness. And and so this the wearing of trousers that covered the thigh was a part of the priestly garb. So and that was to avoid nakedness. What
3: about swimming?
0: Yeah, so I think if you're in front of somebody who's not your spouse, that you should seek to cover that. So uh, when I go swimming, I wear a shirt and I wear shorts. And what's that? Non cotton. Uh, well, you, yeah sure, sure. sure, sure you I'm can a
1: suggestion.
0: sure you can get swimming shorts or whatever but I mean okay. like yeah so it's just it's, 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 it's swimming is a thing where you know doing that in front of other people requires some care thankfully we have pretty good technology that makes it fairly easy to wear stuff that covers that so do you think there's a biblical argument to not cover nakedness in front of other people Uh, that sometimes other than your spouse and medical care (laughs) okay Um, okay so um, okay so head of house voting speaking of men versus women um, okay so right now I'm the only elder uh, the goal is to have multiple elders. Elders have to be given to hospitality, um, which and so right now I have a Thursday night Bible study at my house every week. You are all welcome to come. Once we have, um, you know, more elders, then I would basically, we would basically have a parish system where the individual elders have families that are, so they represent specifically, and the encouragement would be to have regular hospitality opportunity by those elders. For the people that are part of their group that they represent. And the uh, the idea is not that you're obligated to go to that. It's not a call to worship. It's not something that scripturally you're forced to go to. But we would encourage it as a way of building relationship and of allowing the elders to exercise hospitality. And then I would want to encourage home visits on a yearly basis. I can't find a biblical basis to say it's a requirement, like to require that you let an elder into your home to search your drawers um, but that you should invite an elder over if they're your representative if they've only got ten families that they represent then how are they going to know about your life much if you're not opening yourself up to them at all right so, so in order for them to care for you they, they can open up their home and opening up your home in return I think sharing in that you know, opening your life talking about problems that are going on this idea of mutual hospitality as a way of building relationship and that's also how the elder can help to encourage hospitality by people in the congregation as a part of developing for eldership and for a diaconal office. So hospitality is important, it's the central place for ministry to occur and it's where the wife gets to use her giftings, including teaching. And uh, so hospitality is kind of the life of the church outside of the public assemblies and so if the public assembly is not breeding hospitality then the question would be is the public assembly breeding faith in the people and so i think the hospitality is a very important thing i want to encourage you uh, to be hospitable to each other and to try to the elders should try to seek to make sure that they could um, not quite invite themselves but come close to it and having at least a once a year home visit to, to see that so um the other thing with sort of the parish elder and accountability system, uh, the goal is to develop every man to be elder qualified. I'm not saying every man will be elder qualified, but that's the standard that we're saying, here is the kind of man we want to see every man be. Um, the thing that is least guaranteed, right, all the fruits of the Spirit are going to be given to us by different degrees at different times. We should expect to die with certainly nothing less than deacon qualification and we should try to be skilled at teaching. And so those are things that we should pursue. We don't have a, a, a guarantee of winning on any of those things, but that's we're being renewed after the image of Christ, and those, those qualification sets explain what that looks like. And so we use that as the standard for, for teaching men and discipling men. So my goal is to teach men that they are the pastors of their homes. They are prophets, priests, and kings. Uh, That is advanced, this maturing is advanced through church attendance without age segregation ministries. So age segregation ministries undermine the headship of the husband and make it so that there is a relating to the household, not through the head of house and not with him there as a protector. Um, So the goal is to Acknowledge that church attendance—you have whole families there, including the fathers. Um, the fathers will be pushed. You are—you—you swear in our in our church covenant to lead family worship and to see that private worship is de- being done in the home. Um, you need to lead your wife and become a unified team to function well together, and function well together for dominion and for discipleship. And learning to function well together involves. Uh, intentional cooperation and that requires effort one of the dangers uh, that can occur is that a husband and wife can both kind of have their own thing going on and not have a mutual life and when the kids are gone there's not much of a relationship and it's important that that relationship be solid because that's going to be the best thing to help to make it so the kids can be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord you are obligated to provide a Christian education to your children Uh, as a head of house you're obligated to find profitable employment of all the members of your house so giving chores to kids while they're young is an important part of not teaching them to be idle and wastrels Um, to think about estate building and service of all the members of your house what are your members of your house doing to serve in the public assembly how are they helping Um, not just in the public assembly but in the preparation for it or in other things that need to be done work that needs to be done for the church, the maintenance of the ministry, the working of the ministry, those things. There there are things to be done, there are things to look out for, and the goal would be to talk about how to deploy everybody to be concerned for service without trying to invent some sort of thing. We're looking for biblical types of service that are useful. So that is, those are the distinctives, those are the um, The things we've gone over over the last four classes and the things that I'm emphasizing here, these are things that are odd about us or that are key to our identity. Um, I'm trying to make that clear and see if there's any concern or anything like that. So let me open the floor if there's any questions or comments or objections, anything I just went through there.
2: There's still an open question about. uh, um, about uh, prayer order of prayer mm-hmm. um, I was looking through a little bit on the um, director of the worship and I look, there was something on uh, uh, um, Answers in Genesis just long ago about praying to Jesus home um, and uh, uh, so the so we have the Lord's Prayer from Jesus as an example. Um, there's no pushback on that, obviously. Uh, so I guess, you know what, where you're, you're holding to the position that we're not to pray. Son, with well, the Holy Spirit, but only to the Father, in the name of the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, which I understand the order there and the, the, the purpose there, but there are examples of scripture, you know, like in Scripture, the last, the last scripture in of Revelation, of the Lord Jesus. Um, I mean there are examples of prayer to seemingly and worship to the sun let's say so what's and I was looking at the in reading I didn't spend a lot of time reading to the director of public worship in Westminster uh, on prayer but it was more fo- it was focused on what to pray about when to pray and the, in the Service at least where I am, um, and didn't address.
0: so I, I don't know of a, a good one so in short just to summarize for anybody who's not familiar with what we're talking about the question of who to pray to so we ought to worship the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and prayer is an act of worship and so should we pray to all the members of the Trinity or how are we dealing with the members of the Trinity in, in prayer so and I have asserted that we are commanded to pray to the Father and we're given an approved example of that and we are not commanded to or given a proved example of praying to the Son or to the Holy Spirit. There's certainly worship, and there's... Um, so I'm not trying to uh, say that we shouldn't worship all the members of the Trinity. Uh, so, but in prayer, my understanding of how we worship all the members of the Trinity in prayer is by praying to the Father, as you've said, uh, in the name of the Son and empowered by the Holy Spirit using the spirit standard of the scriptures um so i think using the regulated principle which is an important part right being puritan means we try to apply the regulated principle to the doctrine worship and government of the church um so we'd say okay so with the worship can we prove that we are supposed to pray to the son and the two main texts that are used to do that are the martyrdom of stephen where he has a vision of Jesus and speaks to Jesus and the um, revelation given to John and the speaking to Jesus in the midst and the whole revelation is a vision of Jesus and so I think that those two cases are examples of speaking to Jesus while Jesus is giving a vision of Jesus and so I think that those are um, it's like talking to Jesus while he's on earth now Christ in his divinity, obviously. Jesus hears our prayers, and um, he mediates. And when we are saying them in the name of Jesus, we are calling upon his mediation, knowing what they are, and his um, intercession for us to have those prayers be accepted. Um, And so um, I think those two cases simply... Don't prove that we should now pray to Jesus, and so again, the vision being the argument. So, do you, do you find that answer um, unsatisfactory?
2: Yeah, I, I would. I would uh, if I if we were to take a solid position um, and say that we can pray to Jesus, I, I would say still that uh, I would agree with you that we're not where whereas we are.
0: We, so if we I'm oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut
2: you off Jeff.
0: Uh, so so can you go to the second commandment in the shorter catechism? It's going to be like 49, thank you. So, question 50. What is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. What does it? Forbid? The second commandment forbids the worshipping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. So the question is, if we can see what's been commanded, we know that's been appointed. But we're not to worship in a way that has not been appointed. So unless we can prove that we should, it is forbidden. So... First Corinthians 12:8 you said? Yeah, it's 12, 8.
1: starting in verse maybe verse 7. For conference
0: or maybe it more complex response. I am not seeing I'm I'm, a, I'm doing something wrong. Sorry. So First Corinthians 12 so the second second, second second Okay. So the Lord Is used a lot in scripture and it's used in reference to um, God the Son in terms of, you know, curios. So I'm wondering, I know we we see it um, used in reference to God, and in in the same way that we see the word God, but I'm wondering if I know that generally in the letters to the Corinthians. Paul uses the language of the Lord in reference to Christ, right? So in the letter, that is frequently his usage.
2: And I think in context, the verses 9... this doctrine is solidly in place. Uh, just looking at this this verse, you know, these, these verses, what do you think that it, it is Christ that he's addressing um, as the Lord? Uh, okay.
0: So if, um, if that is If that is what the text is saying, then that would be an approved example of praying to Jesus. So the question becomes: if uh, we, we need to see if that is the interpretation to have. When you have texts that are able to be interpreted a certain way, you know, think about how people approach the psalmody question. They'll say. Well, uh, by you know, over here it says they sing a hymn after the Lord's Supper. And although it's probably the Hallel, because that was like the universal practice of the Jews after the Passover. Uh, maybe it's a different hymn. It's not the Psalms. And so, if you have a wider usage of a word, to create a doctrine on an ambiguity of a wider usage of a word or a more narrow usage of a word, is a dangerous thing. So this, what we will be doing is we coming and saying, we need to we need to come with with clarity about its use. So we might be able by saying, look throughout 1 Corinthians. All the usages of kurios are Jesus. If that's the case, then I think it would be very difficult to avoid the conclusion this is an approved example of praying to Jesus. Um, And so we want to look at it also in other parts of, of the New Testament. But I'd want to be very careful to not just say because this could be Jesus, therefore we can pray to Jesus. And so I'd want to push in on this further, so I will do that, so I'm putting that to you now that I will look into that um, and interact with you on an ongoing basis about that piece. I don't think that it's a confessional standard. I think the confession intentionally avoids that by always talking about praying to God. Uh, It never says uh, a limiting thing or prevents the possibility of praying to Jesus. Um, It always talks about the mediation being by Jesus, and talks about the empowering by the Spirit, but it never limits it to the Father, and I think that my understanding is that's an intentional ambiguity because of dispute about it. You also find, obviously, lots of Puritans, like the Valley of Vision is full of prayers to uh, the different members of the Trinity. So, different members, the Valley of Vision is a popular Puritan prayer book, and it was it, it has prayers to every member of the Trinity in it. So, this is not a confessional uh, issue. This came up from a sermon of mine, right, and has been a, an ongoing thing that we've I talked about for in the context of that, and um, that's why it's being discussed more here. But I think that that is, I think it's true, and I'm going to examine this verse and come back and, and, and see. Mr. Cotney? Um, I think, just uh, so you
3: know, I, I don't go by Westminster here, but the other, uh, the three women's community, held the title, murdered uh, don't address it, um, they don't go into, like you say, they stick with God and Lord. And as Christ is Lord, uh, one substance is the father, I don't think it's something that is um, a deal breaker, if that deal breaker, I think, uh, I can see the argument. want to go by the uh,
0: Yeah, so I think um, we, want to make, we want to be very careful to in no way deny the divinity of Christ. Right, I think that's what you meant by kind of your second line, yeah. And, and so that's why I try to be very careful to say we are worshiping all three members of the Trinity when we pray. Um, and I worry, that's actually part of my reason for worrying about praying to other members of the Trinity, is what role does the Father play when we don't pray to him? So if we're just praying to Christ in the name of Christ... Then where is the Father in our Trinitarian prayer now? And so, if we pray to the Spirit, then He's empowering us, and we're praying in the name of Christ. But where is the Father? And so, that's actually one of the reasons why I think theologically Trinitarian prayer would be to the Father um, in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I, if there's a proven, exa- if there's an approved example, then my reasoning's wrong. <laughs> so, I will submit to Scripture in that. You know, despite my enjoyment of that you know, Trinitarian nicety. Yeah, no, I- Sure. Another
2: member of my family. Right, and you're and
0: you're serving your house you're serving your house well by pushing for understanding on it. And I appreciate that and I don't mean to in any way be negative about it. And it's and I have a verse that I'm not well positioned to explain right now in a way that is uh, I've I've read it before and heard it used before but always on, well just well the Lord is used to refer to every member of the Trinity, so that's fine, it's just that. I've just moved on. But I it's being brought up as a challenge and being asserted well the context, I'm being pushed to think about it deeper than I had before, and so now I'm obligated to give you an answer. So I, that's how I'm taking it. and I'm not offended that's at all. not. Right. Right. Mr. Nye. So, um, I'm
1: not sure if, if uh, it would be helpful to, to look at the broader context now, um, or maybe discuss this later after, uh, because I know that more questions.
0: Need to be- sure. There are more. Qu- there's, there's more information I wanted to talk about that was yeah. requested that I talk about not because I think it's really necessarily required for a membership class but there were some questions about it. Yeah. Uh, but I, so was there anything in particular that you wanted to say about the context before we moved off? Yeah, I, I can briefly
1: summarize. Yeah. I think the broader context, the broader context is, is uh, the apostle is, is given visions of like the highest heaven, like he's taken up and visions. Like that's that's verses one through six. And and so this humiliating um, experience that he has in, in verse seven, what the Lord gives to him, and this is assuming obviously that that the Lord is referring to Christ, could could that be another essentially another vision that he's talking about in verses seven through twelve. I just wanted to throw that out there. So we could talk about that later of course I
2: Sure.
0: Maybe this would be a good thing for us to spend some time on at the fellowship meal, yeah. also, because it would be a fruitful conversation. Okay, um, okay so that's great. Thank you for pointing that out. You.
3: Mr. Price. Yeah.
0: So when we talk about the begottenness of the Son, what, what, we're not, what Scripture's not saying is not saying that Christ gets his substance or being from the Father. It's talking about um, the two things that are being talked about typically are either the idea that Christ has a role by agreement that's different, which is not a difference of substance or, or, or of his kind of divine essence. Those are the same. But it's by agreement having a different role. And that's eternal. So there's not like an order of, of generation. Um, the other thing is often we're talking about the, the resurrection, where Christ's resurrected is kind of talked about as a begottenness. You could also talk about the Holy Spirit and the virgin conception of Christ. Um, but I don't know of any verses that use that language there. Um, but so I just I want to say that the scriptures do not teach that jesus derives his essence from the father but that he eternally is divine and so that's a matter of roles and not of the essence does that make sense okay so um okay so then i think continuing at the fellowship meal to discuss um the who's to be prayed to and whether that text is talking about jesus Uh, would be good uh, the fellowship meal for now i'm going to jump to um there were some questions about um about epistemology that i was asked to kind of go into um essentially the request was you know westminster fellowships teaching on um the light of reason and the relationship of scripture to reason um so my, the most basic question is, um, is always, how do you know? Right? You, you can't talk about reality unless you know, how do you know what's real? You can't talk about what's good unless you know what's good. So the question of knowledge is the most basic question. You can always ask, how do you know, down to that question. So the, the light that lights the minds of all men is the image of God, which includes reason, and the innate categories that are referenced to the divine nature, the moral categories for the law, those are written on the heart. So there's there's content that allows us to do things like you know, the Sabbath depends upon the category of time, right? Like, you know, am I supposed to keep some time holy and some time is regular? You know, the idea of, of hierarchical relationships in terms of institutions, the fifth commandment written on the heart in terms of honor and pure peers, peership and. So there are, there are categories that exist there, but we, 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 they're wrongly formed. We wrongly form them and have a wrong view of the law, and we wrongly form the attributes of God into idols. And So that's, the, that's conceptual idolatry. So the, when we talk about knowledge, there is a logical order, a metaphysical order, and there's an experiential order. The logical order is that all knowledge comes from the mind of God and is revealed Um, and so the the revelation that's given to us um, is both the general revelation that is the light that lights the minds of all men and it is special revelation and so the logical order, the question is, is the logical order what we start with experientially which is reason, or is the logical order the special revelation and I'm suggesting that the scriptures teach that we have the system of the divine truth we have the eternal truth of God that is given to us in scripture that we have that presented to us are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and caused to believe it and that we that's the experience but that we argue Logically, we say, here is the system of truth, and here are reasons to believe it. And so we are we are given the system of truth by divine revelation, and we give reasons to believe it. Um, experientially, we start with reason, and we are guilty. We are inexcusable because we suppress the knowledge of God by having conceptual idols and by... Violating the law of God written on our hearts. We violate our own consciences. We contradict ourselves. And so we, experientially, we have the regeneration that occurs that causes us to believe the word and then we learn how to defend it. Um, And metaphysically, the order is God causing us to be uh, given scripture and having that be communicated to us by reading or preaching and then the change of our nature to believe it Um, and then there's this progressive illuminating that works so we we are never going to have a justification for positive definitions apart from special revelation we are going to however have definitions in our mind regardless of whether we have special revelation and we're going to contradict ourselves and in contradicting ourselves we are inexcusable because we assert things that are false and make gods falsely and those things are absurd and we do things that are contrary to our own judgments and so inexcusability is founded upon those things so That's the short version, and I want to open the floor to questions about that. So the other way of putting it is, do we prove the Bible from reason, getting to the Bible? Or do we have the Bible and then are able to defend it in such a way that all alternatives are absurd? And I'm saying that we have special revelation, we have the Bible and we are able to defend it against all alternatives as absurd. And whether you want to call that proof or not is going to be based upon what you consider proof. If you have a very narrow view of proof, that proof is coming from prior premises and arriving at a conclusion through a syllogism, then you cannot prove the Bible. If, however, you say showing the alternative as being absurd or incoherent constitutes proof then you do have proof. And so and the,
2: and the latter would be what surrender is
0: teaching. I believe so. And I think that's also what we're teaching.
2: Surrender uh gig the, the pastor
0: was he says when you when you can directly define the basic things, that that proper understanding of the basic things amounts to proof. Because denial of those definitions of like the laws of logic, he asserts is, is absurd, right? And so I'm, I think I'm, we're asserting the same thing, but, I think he would probably find he would have found abhorrent, the assertion that you start with the Bible, but I, in my own pushing on that, the definitions problem we've talked about that, I have. Found that there was agreement that there have to be innate categories, and so. The idea of the innate categories is the, is the main problem. If you don't have Scripture for, for definitions, and if you don't have innate categories, without innate categories, you can't think. And without Scripture, you can't tell if your innate categories are rightly formed. So inexcusability does not depend upon having all the definitions right. Inexcusability is based upon the fact that we wrongly worship things we ought not to, and it's obvious by the way we think about them that they're not God. And we do things that are contrary to our own judgments about what is right and wrong. And I think that's what you see the Apostle Paul saying in Romans. Sure. So, God is the highest authority, and so there is no higher authority than the Word of God. There is an ordering inside of the Word of God of more basic to less basic. So, the most basic thing in the Word of God is the law of logic, the laws of logic. If if any part of Scripture contradicts itself, it violates the law of logic, and that's the most easy to understand and simple, and it's the most basic. And so, you can the laws of logic are in Scripture; they are embedded in Scripture. Um, God is logical. If He contradicts Himself, what He's saying is false. And so, God does not contradict Himself. And so, the coherence is the first thing about it that makes it so that you go, "This is coherent." No other system that claims to be true is coherent. Every other system contradicts itself. And the, in our own experience, the reason that any of us come to believe is because the Holy Spirit persuades us to believe. So the Holy Spirit causes us to have faith. Oftentimes, people will believe without having a good argument because the Holy Spirit has persuaded them. But they will deepen in faith because they will have questions. There will be points where they find they don't know the meaning of things, and so they didn't really have faith at the points where they didn't understand. But they have some sort of faith about the gospel or some element of scripture. And so... The Holy Spirit causes us to believe more and more detail and causes us to have a grounding by causing us to see the reasons. Um, but there's no higher authority than the Word of God. And the most simple, most basic part of the Word of God are the laws of logic. If you deny them, what happens is you end up in, a, in absurdities. I can explain that in more detail, but that's my effort to answer with an overview. I
1: think
0: might need to because I think some of the laws of logic there have I think a questions in terms of that sure in interpretation of um, yeah okay sounds good before talking about that um, okay then any, anybody else have any other questions yeah
2: so uh, I'm just trying to understand how you're understanding for those who say you're talking to them, you're showing them trying
0: to understand how you're seeing that Yeah, that happens. A lot of the times they'll have a stumbling block of unbelief, they've got a false belief. And that's a process whereby you're kind of like taking a rake through the you know, through the gravel trying to find the thing that it catches, right? you you're you're looking for what's the false assumption they've got and you're trying to show them that their assumption is incoherent. And when that's cleared away, their objections don't stand right so that's a it the, any systematic apologetic methodology is designed to find the objection and when you get there to put the emphasis on it and fight on it until it's clear to them that their false presupposition is is false and so they can reject right they can go irrational they can they can you know whatever but, but you're trying to find it and put the attention the spotlight on the on the irrational assumption they've got so that's real work, that's good work. Um, the way that Surendra trained everybody at Westminster Fellowship was to focus on metaphysics quickly. And the way that I have trained people and the way that I tend to do it is to stay on epistemology longer. And so I, I use four categories and I say, okay, so I think what you're claiming leads to irrational skepticism, like you can't know anything. And so I will go, well, how's that? So, all okay, right, great. So I'll talk to them, I'll say, real quickly, about truth. Do you agree that truth is propositional? And I'll talk about that, the meaning of it, the meaning of declarative sentences. and, And so, okay. And if they say no, then I'll say, okay, well, is that proposition true? Truth's not propositional. Okay, is that proposition true? Right, okay. Is truth rational? Does it cohere with the laws of logic? No, it doesn't. Okay, I agree with you, it does. Right, if there's no loss of logic, then I can say contradictory things, and we agree. Okay, so I agree with you. Let's keep going. Okay, so, okay, is truth knowable? They say, no, it's not knowable. Do you know that? Oh, you don't know that? Then well, why don't you shut up and listen to me, and I will tell you what I know, and you can challenge me. Right, that's, the, that's the less nice way you can say, well, you should be quiet if you don't know, and listen to one who does. Um, so, you know, So, okay, I, no, I don't know that okay great Um, so no I don't know that okay then you shouldn't talk I do know that you know that you don't know so you do know right so okay then um, truth is is uh, is unchanging if somebody says truth is changing they'll say okay great so someday it will change to not changing right If, if truth changes then someday it will change to be not changing Right, so when we get there, it will be not changing. But for now, it's changing. So right now while it's changing, do you know that it hasn't changed unchanging yet? Like so, okay, so it's the same for everybody everywhere. Not, you know, it's not relative, right? It's universal. And so these are, the, these are the five things and that you can do the same thing with that, right? Okay, if they say no truth is relative, you say okay, well for me truth is universal so you should submit to my truth. Or if they say it's 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 relative then I go okay well yeah truth is universal for me and so if it's relative for everybody then you've got contradictory truths and A is true and A is not true and uh, for me it's universal so you can't deny what I'm saying you can't say what I'm saying is false it's fine you can be quiet and I'll talk and you have to accept what I'm saying is true right? so I mean they, those five attributes of truth I think those are that's what clarity is I think that's what clarity is and Surrender's use of the word clarity. And I would go to those, and so I would say any denial of one of those five things is irrationalism, and I use those to pull back. And so I'm going to go after their theory of knowledge, and I'm going to go after rationalism, empiricism, and then any other claim of Scripture besides the Bible. I'm going to say those are incoherent. I'm going to try to show them why. And the method for going after all those claims is going to be actually basically the same way that Surrender does for all of the... You know, for Islam, for for Judaism, rejection of fake Judaism, um, you know, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, I'm going to go after them in basically the exact same way that he does. Um, So, but I'm going to focus on almost everybody's, you know, empirical or irrational now. And there's some people who are serious about some sort of other religion. But that's how I'm going to go at it. And then, when we're talking about their particular scripture set, I'm going to use epist- or metaphysical claims more on them in terms of, uh, of that. Or if they're empiricists, I'm going to use the problems of the metaphysical set to attack their view of naturalistic materialism. So I think Syringo's methodologies are extremely useful on the individual ones, but I'm not going to go through that chain in the metaphysics. I'm going to show them, look, you're stuck with either you believe divine revelation where you have no knowledge if you have no knowledge you're contradicting yourself so you're forced to search for knowledge here's, this, here's claims that are coherent and then as they deny them I'm going to seek to answer their denials or answer the objections that they've got and my goal is to present the content of scripture because that is the ordinary means that the Holy Spirit uses to regenerate so, so it's does that help to make clear the difference of methodology okay So, okay. So I think that that is, um, I think when you press them, they're in agreement. There's a different starting point of how you present. And the presenting, Surrender's methodology of presentation is essentially trying to start experientially with the human thought process. And it's kind of focused on that. I'm going to go focus on the logical order dealing with the need for divine revelation and then respond to the objections along the way using a lot of the material from Surrender's book. I think that it's just a different approach on it.
2: Um
0: so. Okay. And anything else about metaphysics or epistemology that anybody wanted to deal with to see if you could run away or Great. Then, last opportunity for questions. I'll never talk to you again. Mr. Nye.
1: Uh, just the, along the lines of, of natural revelation, I think it, it might be helpful to just um, uh, be clear that, in terms of the, the physical creation, the material creation, as an source
0: of natural revelation like our stance on that. Yeah, so Tirander talks about the seven uses of the word of, or the seven way we talk about the word of God. Um, in one of the seven, right? So he talks about the um, so obviously there's the word incarnate, so there's the eternal word, God the son. There's the word incarnate, there's the, uh, there's, the there's the decree of God, the word of incarnate, the the special revelation, there's the light that lights the minds of all men. Um, and he talks about sanctification and he talks about the maturing of the church as being the ways in which the word is manifested um, so the, the decree of God is how I put it he talks about it as the as creation of providence and the reason I say decree of God decree of God is because it's important that we not talk about, we're not looking at the works of creation and providence as in Looking at the fact that in space and time this cup is floating around like this, you're not by your empirical evidence. You're not, you're not like with your eyes, looking at this cup, and by your experience, coming to increased knowledge of God. That's empiricism. Um, when we talk about the the works of creation and providence causing us to know god the works of creation and providence there's a there's a technical terms in the in the standards and the way they're used is chapter one is scripture chapter two is the divine nature in the trinity chapter three is the decree of god chapter four is creation chapter five is providence creation and providence are being defined as the decrees and so, the work of creation is not the stuff that's made. The work of creation is the fact that God made all things of nothing. You don't observe that. The work of providence is not the fact that there's stuff that's happening in time. The work of providence is God's government of that stuff, which is not something you can see with your eyes. And so, Paul's point is that we see the invisible attributes of the invisible God, not by our eyes. But by the light of nature, and that is the light of nature won't allow us to escape the fact that God created because something must be eternal, and the fact that God governs because of the fact that there is a moral order. And so I think those are the things that are written on the heart. That's the uh, that's the way in which the word as the decree. We don't see the decrees. The decrees are invisible. Uh, we see effects of the decrees, but the works of creation and providence that we, that make it so that man is inexcusable, are not, our, sense experience. Otherwise, people who have some sort of disability and their sense sense array doesn't work, that that they would not be getting that general revelation. So, general revelation is not experience. General revelation is the light that lights the minds of all men. So, is that where you were wanting me to explain? Um, okay, so any concerns about that? You want to ask for challenge about that? Okay. Okay, so, and I, I found that when I spoke to uh, people at Westminster about that, that they would agree, and when I pushed on that. But there's lots of stuff that I've read that sounds like maybe we're talking about the, the visible stuff, and I think maybe that was just something where there hadn't been a lot of pushing Um, on it in terms of the language and the clarity of the language so okay so great then you all have a delightful lunch and or other things and I will see you at the evening service